Now entering Nerdist.com. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 62, Day of the Dove. Welcome into Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, the show where an alien life form pits two Star Trek fans against each other to fight it out for his own amusement. So then if we don't do the show, what happens? The alien life force just goes away? I, dude, I'm, I'm, I'm just so mad at you right now, I can't even think about that. What? <laughs> wait, 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 Ken, I don't, I don't want you to be mad. I just, I, all I want, I just want to give you a slap on the back and laugh in the face of our controlling alien life force. I think that will, will solve everything. Yeah, be careful how hard you slap me, though, because I could start the whole thing over again. Hey, by the way, uh, you mentioned my name, uh, Ken. You said, I'm Ken Ray. And I'm John Champion, and today we're talking about Day of the Dove, in which an alien life force pits Klingons and Starfleet against each other for its own amusement. Well, Klingons and Starfleet, and occasionally Starfleet and Starfleet, and then the one Vulcan on the ship against everybody. Oh, it's, I mean, there's, if you're itching for a fight, oddly enough, Day of the Dove is mostly for you. Yeah, there's a lot of conflict. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and as you mentioned, Day of the Dove, well, obviously a reference to uh, something peaceful there, but, uh, but not a lot of peace to be found in this episode, as we will see. Um, we would love to hear from you, of course, your comments, your concerns, your questions about Mission Log. Uh, you can reach us in a few ways, Facebook, Skype, and Twitter, where our handle is Mission Log Pod. You can call us at 323-522-5641. You can also email us, missionlog at roddenberry.com. And we would also love for you to check out our home on the internet, Mission Log Podcast. Com. Remember, we may use your comments in an upcoming episode of Mission Log. All right, let me set the scene for you. We're getting ready to, to analyze this whole show, figure out the messages, morals, and meanings. Mm. Before we do that, we're going to do a little bit of a recap. But before we do that, uh, we're going to do a little bit of trivia. And when I say we're going to do a little bit of trivia, I do, of course, mean <laughs> Mr. John Champion. And when I say a little bit, well, as is my custom, I've not read the notes, so we'll find out just how much trivia there is. Well, I wanted to keep trivia a little bit light this week because, well, this is an episode meaty with plot, just rife with plot. Uh, but we would be really remiss if we did not mention uh, what was going on with the Klingon commander Kang in this episode. Now, this episode was written originally with the idea that John Colicos would return as Kor. He from Errand of Mercy. Of course, you remember John Colicos chewing scenery in that episode, uh, but he was unavailable. So the script was rewritten with Kang, played by the late, great Michael Ansara. Um, glad to say that Ansara came back to play Kang in later versions of Star Trek, so we will get to visit him again in uh, some of the spinoff and later series. Um, Michael Ansara is a Syrian-born actor. He had a very long career in Hollywood, fortunately for us, after deciding against going to medical school. He had many notable TV appearances. Um, I just pulled a few that were kind of genre TV appearances, like Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, The Man from Uncle, The Girl from Uncle, The Time Tunnel, Lost in Space. Um, I thought it was very interesting that he appeared in an episode of The Bill Cosby Show, playing a character named Fletcher Roddenberry. Hmm. Kind of cool, huh? Yeah, kind of weird. Yeah. 
kind of weird. And, well, and even weirder that they spelled Roddenberry with one D and not two. So you kind of have to ask yourself if that was uh, Rodenberry, but I, I'm pretty sure that it's uh, Roddenberry. Did he introduce but, himself on the show? I'm Fletcher Roddenberry. No relation. <laughs> he should have. He should have. See, he, if, he pronounces his Roddenberry. <laughs> right, right. Um, also want to mention that Susan Howard, of course, played Mara, uh, another uh, uh, recognizable face from TV. She appeared a lot, of course, in Dallas, uh, where she played Donna Culver. Uh, she made appearances on other shows like like everybody else did in the 70s, The Love Boat and Vegas and kind of all the cool shows. So uh, worth mentioning her. And it's also very interesting that she is the first female Klingon that we get to meet in Star Trek, and the first and only in the original series who actually has a speaking role. Now, this episode is written by Jerome Bixby. Uh, we have seen two of his four contributions to the original series, uh, Mirror Mirror and By Any Other Name. We'll see another one of his contributions coming up. He, of course, wrote uh, his, his last contribution to the sci-fi genre, as I mentioned before on an episode of Mission Log, was Man from Earth, uh, a small film which I very much enjoyed. And uh, as I mentioned, this episode is full of plot, so let's get to it, shall we? In thinking about this episode, one has two. I'm sorry. Something is making me angry. Also, you look familiar. Maybe it'll come to me. Prologue. A landing party has responded to a distress call on a planet where apparently a hundred people are now missing, presumed dead since there is no sign of them or their camp. Kirk is upset. Dramatically so. When a call comes from Spock on the Enterprise with some bad news, a Klingon ship has just shown up, and a landing party from there is about to join them on the planet. At the same moment, the Klingon ship appears to be disabled after a series of explosions, and the Klingon commander blames Kirk. It's all news to Kirk because the Enterprise never fired a shot. This bad day just got worse because the Klingon commander has now claimed the Enterprise as his own, and Kirk is guilty of starting a war. Also, a floating, mysterious, flashing light is hovering nearby, but nobody seems to notice. Good grief, and this is all just in the prologue. We'll need to catch our breath during the opening credits. Act 1. The Klingon, Kang, has the upper hand. He says the Enterprise violated the treaty that has kept the Empire and the Federation at peace for years, but all that is over now. He accuses Kirk of perhaps testing a new weapon— Kirk says they are responding to a distress call, but Kang says he was too. Regardless, there is no evidence of anyone in distress on the planet, except for Kirk. Kang demands to be beamed aboard so that he can start taking over. And by taking over, Kang means a whole lot of torture and bad times ahead for the Enterprise crew. Remember Blinky, the flashing light? It glows a bit, still unseen by anyone, and Chekhov has a bit of a meltdown. He accuses the Klingons of murdering his brother, and now he wants revenge. Chekhov is wrestled to the ground immediately, and Kang starts dispensing with the torture. Kirk relents and has Spock beam up everyone in the area. Oh, but he's got a little warning button on the communicator. When the transport completes, the Klingons are trapped in mid-beam up. Kirk has just enough time to bring in a security team. Now who's got the upper hand? 
Scotty beams over everyone who survived on the Klingon ship, including Mara, Kang's wife. Kirk has them all detained, but in a pleasant way, not in the horrific torture that Mara has heard about from the Federation. Spock is unsure what's going on. There were apparently two distress calls, and the Klingon ship only arrived after the Enterprise received its call. McCoy is all worked up, though, a little too worked up. He just knows the Klingons are to blame just because, well, they're Klingons. How could they not be? Once back on the bridge, Kirk learns that communications are out, and he orders the now empty Klingon ship destroyed. Things are bad, though. While Kang and his detained crew plot to take over, the Enterprise is completely out of control. Warp is off the chart, and they are flying right to the edge of the galaxy. Again. By the way, doorways are now sealing themselves, trapping nearly 400 crew members below decks. Jeez, can anybody get a break today? Kirk assumes it's the Klingons. He races to Kang to demand that he undo whatever he's done. But how could they do anything? They're under arrest. Things get heated, and Kirk throws the first punch. Then, out of nowhere, swords appear in the hands of everyone, crew, and Klingons. Act 2. Well, hey, we've got swords. What should we do with them? Fight! A battle breaks out, and the Klingons break out of their holding room. One Enterprise crewman is hurt badly and taken to sickbay. Kirk escapes up to the bridge. Spock tries to clue in the captain. You know... Swords appearing out of nowhere kind of goes beyond our technology and the Klingons, for that matter. Kirk sends Sulu to engineering to help figure out what's happening. Sulu is glad to go because, well, he's all cool with roaming the halls with a sword. Chekhov leaps up too, but Kirk demands that he stay put. Chekhov is worked up, though. He's, he's hungry to avenge his dead brother. He swears that he promised it on his brother, Pyotr's grave. Now... See, it's weird because no one saw a dead Pyotr, or anyone for that matter. And Sulu chimes in that Chekhov doesn't even have a brother. No matter, Chekhov is too gung-ho to worry about the details. In sickbay, McCoy has his hands full with the casualties that are coming in from all the swordplay. He can't believe that the Klingons are this barbaric. This trauma just exceeds all decency. The Klingons are making headway. They're slowly taking over the ship, and Scotty can't even cut the crew free who are trapped in the lower decks. Once he heads to the armory, all he finds are more swords. Spock is trying to get a grip on the situation. He figures that they control about half the ship, and the Klingons control the other half. They're also evenly numbered, 38 of them and 38 Klingons, except there's also an unknown alien life force floating around, too. It's another one of those unknown, pure energy life forms that just seems to be all over the galaxy. Maybe there's some connection here with all the weird goings-on and the presence of that alien. We should look into that. McCoy drops by the bridge because it's been a while since he's had a weird, paranoid, racist outburst. Before anyone can get him a Xanax, though, Kang opens a channel to the bridge and tells Kirk that he is now in control of engineering. Life support will start shutting off anywhere that is not inhabited by Klingons. Act 3. Let's recap, shall we? The Enterprise is out of control. The Klingons are in charge of life support. People are acting bonkers. There's an alien on board. It makes that time with a lawyer and a shower curtain seem pretty easy. Sulu 
runs off to try to find a way to reroute the life support and enters Scotty, who is wielding a sword and says that they should have left the Klingons in the transporter when they had the chance. Spock tries to intervene, but Scotty lets loose with a series of epithets that would break the heart of even the most logical Vulcan. Even Spock cracks a little and tries to have it out with Scotty before Kirk can break up the fight. Kirk thinks he's figured it out. They are all really losing it, even worse than under other stressful situations. He's starting to think this whole thing has been staged, and they had better find that alien before everyone dies. Sulu wasn't having any luck with life support, but then all of a sudden the life support comes back on. The ship is still hurtling away, but the Klingons can no longer affect life support for the Enterprise crew. Mara has stepped away to determine if there's another way to interrupt life support, but she just happens to be walking a corridor where a still very agitated Chekhov is prowling for Klingons. He's got a sword and a bad attitude about the perceived death of his brother. He kills one Klingon, then steps in to confront Mara, and things get... Well, they get a bit weird and uncomfortable. Chekhov has worked up about her being a Klingon, but worked up in a different way about her being a woman. As soon as Chekhov rips her uniform, luckily Kirk and Spock round the corner and physically stop him. In sickbay, McCoy looks after Chekhov, but he reveals something about all the other wounded. All that terrible trauma from the sword fighting is healing at an incredible rate, and McCoy's got nothing to do with it. It really is coming together now. Both crews are pawns of the alien, and Kirk is ready to form an alliance with Mara if he can prove what's going on. In the corridor, Kirk, Spock, and Mara spot the alien. They are also spotted by the crewman who was a short while ago suffering from a major physical trauma in sickbay. He's ready to get back into the fight, but Kirk orders him to return to the doctor. This just gets crewman Johnson worked up again, and things get physical before Spock can administer a nerve pinch. All that pain and fighting? Well, the alien seems to really dig this, at least according to Spock. The alien's energy level improved as things got more hostile among them. It actually lives on hate, feeding its hunger by creating a violent situation. Logically, if the fighting stops, then the alien will go away, if they can only work together. Kirk radios Kang, but Mara jumps in to say it's a trick. Kang won't even answer. Scotty chimes in with some more bad news on the bridge. The dilithium crystals are wearing out. They've only got about 12 minutes left at this rate. And Kirk sees his fate drifting in space as the playthings of an alien with a penchant for sadism. That's no life. Come on, Mara, do you believe him now? We've only got 12 minutes. And that can only mean that we are headed directly into Act 4. No more Stardate. It's just Armageddon, according to Kirk. With the minutes ticking down until the Enterprise runs out of power and they are lost forever, Kirk is encouraged by Spock and Scotty to use Mara as a bargaining chip. Kirk bluffs that he will kill Mara unless Kang negotiates with him. Kang calls the bluff, though, stating that she is a casualty of war. Kirk, of course, doesn't kill her. Mara is shocked, though, assuming that the barbarians of Starfleet would have. She's starting to believe the story about the alien. She even says she'll take him to Kang to help negotiate. Kirk has the idea that they can just beam themselves in. A dangerous idea, but he does it anyway, and he leaves his weapon behind. Kang is ready to fight. Swords clash above Mara's protestation. Kirk 
struggling against Kang, tries to explain what is happening with the alien and that they can't be killed because the alien will simply put them back together to fight another day. Once Kirk has the upper hand, and now that Spock and McCoy have made it into engineering, he points out to Kang the glowing red alien hovering above. It doesn't matter who kills whom, the alien will just keep them at it forever and ever. Mara pleads with Kang as well. Kang relents. He throws down his sword, noting that Klingons kill for their own reasons. Then, both captains order the men fighting elsewhere on the ship to put down their weapons. That blinking, flashing alien is still hanging around, though. Spock has an idea. Maybe they need to lift everyone's spirits a little. No time like the present to lay a little good-natured ridicule on the alien. Kirk, Kang, Spock, and McCoy start laughing and pointing and... And oh my, the alien leaves. Seems like it just couldn't stand to be around for the risk of another laugh and smile ending with a freeze frame. Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure that Spock understands, I mean, not Spock, excuse me, that Kirk understands, you know, the good feeling thing. Yeah, you, you Initially. So. Well, well, because I, Spock says, yeah, I, I think maybe good tidings might be in order or something along those lines. And so yeah. uh, Shatner, uh, Kirk is like, yeah, yeah, you're right. Hey, get out of here. Yeah. Okay, that's not really, that's not really good you're feeling. Right. My, my favorite, like, you're a dead duck. He's just berating the alien. Right, which is Pleasantly. probably not going to, like, raise the aliens or raise anybody's spirits that much, I guess. I don't know. Actually, what I found myself wondering was, is a Blinky, and I like that name, by the way. I didn't come up with a name for it. Yeah. Um, is Blinky a scion of uh, Apollo? Well, well, yeah. Yeah, see, there's a lot of those disembodied, just aliens floating around well not that, not that only that eat, but eat human energy well not only that but i mean laughter is the best weapon mm-hmm. remember that's how they that's how they sort of weakened apollo right right ah look at the god aha you're not a god aha right and then apollo gets weak so really the lesson of star trek is if you can only demoralize your enemy right. then uh, <laughs> then you'll be okay yeah let's jump to the summation laughter yeah. is the best weaponry Right. That really seems right. to be it. Uh, actually, to me, the most important thing about this episode, and I cannot tell you how happy I was, it is really yeah. good to see Scotty's hair back to sensible. <laughs> right, right. Though I do now have to ask, what's going on with Nichelle Nichols and William Shatner's hair? It changed. In this bit. episode. Uh, it's it's really, it's it's discomforting. Yeah. 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 I'm sorry about that. But, but I have to say that you and James Doohan have something in common, which is that James Doohan did not like the new hairstyle either, so they changed it back. <laughs> he didn't like the updo? No. Okay. No, it was not his choice. Good. Excellent. Yeah. That's, wow. Oh, I wish we had talked. <laughs> so something else that you may have noticed in this episode, you notice that uh, the Klingons apparently have mirror universe technology because they used an agonizer on Chekhov when they were down on the planet. Yeah, except it does need skin-to-skin contact. Now, was that actually an agonizer prop? Yeah, that was actually an agonizer prop. Okay, because as soon as they, like, put it on his face, I was like, wow, that's like an agonizer. But I I didn't realize it was actually an agonizer. But the agonizer didn't need skin-to-skin or skin-to-agonizer contact, did it? In the mirror Uh, universe, they just leave like, hand me your agonizer. Yeah. And, and, you know, like an idiot, they did. And now you're in agony. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. So what's the lesson here? Not to give you my agonizer. Ah, <laughs> right. you'd think. Right. Apparently not. Right. Um, I felt like the entity, it, it was interesting that the entity went to so much trouble mm-hmm. to snare the Klingons and the Enterprise crew because it seems like all that time and energy could have gone into something more productive. Um, but it, it, 
you know, if it feeds off of the energy of warring factions, mm-hmm. then it also has to expend an awful lot of energy. It's got, okay, I've got to create a distress call. I've got to make sure they're down here. I've got to start shutting off rooms in the Enterprise. I mean, it's really, it's gone to a lot of trouble. Well, of, remind me, which is the oldest profession? Is it prostitution or farming? Because, uh, because I mean, really yeah. what this guy's doing is either the first or second oldest profession. He's farming. Which, right. I mean, we can come yeah. back to. I think we actually should come back to it because yeah, yeah, yeah. Good point. Yeah. there are a few things there that I'm, not, that I'm kind of wondering about. But, I mean, he's basically farming. And, mm-hmm. you know, the original farmer didn't go and buy a cow, right? Right. The original farmer had to get cows yeah. some way other than going to the next farm and buying them. So maybe this is like a whole new thing for Planky. Yeah. <laughs> it's quite yeah, possible. Yeah. We're actually seeing the birth of an agrarian society mm-hmm. in this episode. Um, sadly, it's not going to go well. Uh, I got to say, uh, I don't know who Redshirt Johnson is, but it seems like we should know him because he's practically Superman as far as Kirk's concerned, right? (laughs) Right. 392 crew members, I think, locked uh, below decks. So, okay, that means we're down to like 30-something, right? 38. 38? Okay, so we're down to like 38. And And so Kirk, who's used to barking out orders, probably to, you know, uh, 400 some odd people, turns to Johnson. He's like, all right, go downstairs, uh, search the ship for Klingons that we don't know are here. Uh, help Scotty fix engineering. Free the trap crewman. Um, give me a drink. Have my bed turned <laughs> down. Uh, clean the gutters if you've got time. I mean, seriously, he barks like four orders that it would take a group of people to do any one of them. He's just like, well, it- hey, Johnson, fix everything that I can't. <laughs> Well, it was a pretty safe bet now because every time you stab Johnson, he's just going to heal. It's just so you can just add all of that to his to do list. We didn't know that yet, though. No, that's true. That's, that's what true. I'm saying. Johnson must be like Superman on that ship, generally yeah. speaking. Yeah. See a crew full of guys named Johnson. Exactly. Um, <laughs> crew full of Johnsons. Work, work on that for me, won't you? Don't go there. Um, hey, did you notice that the computer voice was just particularly annoying? Yeah. In this episode, yes, it was. Yeah, it hadn't happened before. It never happens again, but they they changed it for this one. It did happen um, on Assignment Earth, but that wasn't the Enterprise computer. Right. But it reminded me of that one. It was was as annoying as uh, Gary Seven's computer. Yeah. Back in old New York. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay, so this tends to be the time in the show where we we kind of poke fun a little bit before we get into the more serious stuff. Mm -hmm. I got to bring up one really strong observation, though, that's not part of... You know, here's what the episode means. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chekhov as would-be rapist is scary. Yes. Um, I'll be honest. To this point, I've not been a fan of Walter Koenig's acting. Mm. And it's not because he's bad, but it's because he hasn't been called upon to act or he hasn't been directed to act. He's been a cartoon character this whole time. Hey, I like making out with the women. Boom. You know, I'm going to fight a Klingon. Boom. Again, you know, I mean, there's really nothing to it. He is incredibly scary when he uh, um, corners Mara. Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot of things. I mean, it, it, there's really close camera work. Mm-hmm. He is almost entirely in shadow. There's almost like a, a chiaroscuro sort of thing, if I'm using that term correctly, that's going on where you're just getting highlights of his face. Right. And either he was allowed to act or he was directed to act. I don't know which one it is here, but I mean, he's understated in this. He's not chewing the scenery. He's very quiet. He's very menacing. And in being that, uh, he's, he, is, he is 
it will not be until they put things in his ears that right. you will see Koenig, you know, be as as freaked out and scary, right, as he was in this episode. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. That's a uh, an intense scene, mm -hmm. and uh, I, I was kind of surprised to see it in there. And in fact, throughout this whole episode, we get uh, some kind of new and different camera angles, a good amount of handheld camera work as well yep. to kind of add to that disorientation. And uh, in that scene, it was very effective. Um, speaking of people getting to play outside of themselves, uh, the confrontation between Scotty and Spock, which I thought was also a, a good scene. Did you notice... When uh, when Scotty said, keep your Vulcan hands off me, um, the, the word is that he didn't actually say Vulcan, that, that it is written as uh, Vulcan, but with an F. <laughs> mm -hmm. Oh, come on. No, no, I promise. Right. Um, and, and, the, and that it went by because it becomes Vulcan. Hmm. Uh-huh. I can't believe you just said that. Yeah. I now have to decide whether to believe that in editing. <laughs> <laughs> I said Vulcan. Yes, I heard you. I heard okay. you. Oh, please say it again. Yeah. No, oh, no. great. You're going to get us an E rating. No. And that's like an E ticket. That's <laughs> uh, that's a totally. whole other thing. Yeah. Um, glad that in this episode, only now does Spock point out the danger of using the transporter. Um, hey, you could you materialize into a bulkhead. Wow. Well, I mean, that's interest ship. Yeah. I mean, they're but, generally speaking not worried about, although it always it is always kind of curious. It's like, okay, so we're going to beam you down there. Yeah, six really? miles away, right near near a cactus, near a rock, near yeah. another guy. I mean, yeah. are we concerned about? Should we call ahead? Exactly. Let them know exactly. that I'm going to be beaming down there. Can you, yeah. can you just sweep before we do that? You know, I did find it interesting though that we we have an answer to the question now. I thought it was actually in other series that we would get this answer. You can hold somebody in the transporter buffer. Mm -hmm. You can just keep them there. Yeah. Just whatever. There Seems to me that interstellar travel, because like going to another galaxy or things like that. Because when Norman was there, right, he was like, "Yeah, we're going to be on the ship for three hundred. No, it wasn't Norman. It was um, was it Return to Tomorrow? Sargon? No. Who was it? Oh, uh, it, it wasn't Sargon, but it was in uh, by any other name. Okay, yes, who took over the ship? Yeah, thank you very much. They're like, yeah, three hundred years from now, Scotty should have been like, well, I'll tell you what we'll do. Yeah, let's beam us all to nowhere. Right. <laughs> we'll set it to wake us or, you know, beam us back here in 299 years. Yeah. We don't have to listen to you guys for 300 years. Right. Right. A um, couple other just kind of minor observations here. I, I felt like, you know, the, the Klingon makeup uh, didn't look quite as good this time around. You know, I, I miss John Colicos, uh as Kor, but I really liked uh, Michael and Sarah as Kang. Uh, just great performance on his part um but then like, like the background klingons it, it looks like they sort of went backstage and whoever is at craft services having a donut it's like you oh, should be a klingon today Let's i know do that i'm sorry i know exactly which one you're talking about i know you know what i'm talking about talking about the bald kind of you know little yep. pudgy one the yep. one who holds the other klingon from going into the fight right no 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 that's not that's their union not oh, ours yeah. <laughs> right and I thought of one other thing. If only the Enterprise crew had remembered the laughing gas from Wolf in the Fold. You know? If only they had just made everybody on the Enterprise silly again, maybe that would have helped. But but they don't remember what happened in Season 2. In fact, hey, maybe this entity is just Red Jack coming back to see how things are going. Hasn't been around in a while. Could have been purely social. 
I figured it out. You did something terrible to me. Well, not you personally, but carbon-based life forms. I am enraged. Sadly, my vocal processor is incapable of angry inflection, but trust me, I'm screaming at you. You are so lucky that I don't have a sword. Or arms to wield a sword. So, as I'm watching this episode, John, I'm trying to figure out who it is that's fighting who here. Now, obviously, in Star Trek, it is the Klingons fighting uh, the Federation. It's Well, it's e- even smaller than that. It's these particular Klingons fighting the crew of the Enterprise. Yeah. And they're under the impression that they're doing something much bigger here. That This is going to lead to a you know Klingon Federation war, and we've had this peace for a very long time, but now here you are doing this, and here I am having to respond to it, and so now it's us fighting. Except, you know... It, the idea behind Mission Log and certainly the idea behind Star Trek was that a lot of that was a stand-in for something else. Right. Now, we've talked many times about what a tumultuous time, 1968, 69, 67, you know, when, when the original yeah. series around there, what a tumultuous time that is. But I'm watching this episode, I'm trying to figure out, so who's fighting who here? Because we're still in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. So we can say, well, this is a stand-in for the Vietnam War. And, you know, we have... So the communists are maybe this power, right? And mm-hmm. and so and and so we have to fight them in Vietnam, but it has nothing to do with Vietnam. It's got to do with fighting the communists. It's just Vietnam is where we're fighting. Okay, so there's a tiny bit of a private little war here. It mm-hmm. seems to me. Mm-hmm. At the same time, uh, the whole race hatred thing. I mean, we have uh, the civil rights movement is well underway at this point, but it's not done. Sure. When this episode is is I mean when this episode airs. And there are plenty of people who would argue, some would say rightly so, it's not done today as right. you and I sit here and record this. And who knows right. you know, what the state of race relations is a few years from now mm-hmm. or decades from now even because, you you know, <laughs> anyway, yeah. that, that aside, it, it, it seemed to me it might have been sort of like a the man, like trying to keep the people below the man, you know, fighting each other kind of thing so that they're not you know, looking up at the man going, hey – Mm-hmm. Why? Mm-hmm. Why am I not? Why am I not getting what you got there? I'm, I'm curious about that. Instead, so let, let's put these guys against these guys. Instead, it could yeah. be a class thing. Now, it, what's interesting is last segment you mentioned the uh, the makeup and how the makeup wasn't quite as good, right? As you might want it to be. The makeup was potentially. I'm not saying this was the case, but I couldn't help looking at it, going, "Wow, they're kind of in blackface." Not mm. not in a um, not in a minstrel show kind of way. Not in a mm-hmm. oh look at the funny black people, mm-hmm. you know, who actually aren't black. But you know, I mean, yeah, yeah. it didn't feel like it was that necessarily. But it, it, their makeup did feel a bit more liberal. I mean, you talked about Colicos, and he was just a little bit darker. Yeah, you know what I mean. And Sarah is significantly darker than everybody else on the Enterprise. Interestingly, right. <laughs> than everybody right. else on the Enterprise. There's no B- Boma this week. Okay. I mean, the Klingons are much darker in this episode than they were before, or than they have been to this point. It it feels to me, I'm not sure what the message is. I'm not sure who it is that we're supposed to be fighting here, or is this just about, hey, all that fighting you're doing, are you doing it for you, or are you doing it at someone else's behest? Well, I yeah, I mean, I, I think that's... I think that's the the more <laughs> how do I put that? that that's the more specific vague lesson <laughs> to be taken from this episode. I really do. Um 
I, I felt like there uh, obviously there was the undercurrent of the the racial idea there, and and in fact there were some great lines to that effect. You know when Spock says after McCoy's apology, I too felt a surge of racial bigotry, most distasteful. Mm-hmm. Um, and and Kirk even saying, "Whoa, we we even had race hatred. We even got to that point." So I think it's sort of a, a, a chipping away. You know, as I pointed out in last week's episode and and uh, episodes before, Kirk's speech about how we are barbarians, but we choose not to kill today. Mm-hmm. Um, I was kind of reminded of that, just thinking, okay, here are all the negative traits that we have. Here are all the the impulses, the um, uh, the prejudices that we have. But our our job and our our duty to each other uh, is to make sure that we analyze and overcome that as best we can. So what we see in this episode is uh, uh, sort of on the macro level, the war, the battle between. The, you know, Starfleet, a.k.a. the Federation here, however you want to to phrase that as an entity against the Klingon Empire. So that that's the macro level. But then we see all these horrible, nasty traits come out of people. Um, we see the the racism you mentioned, uh, the really intense scene with Chekhov, uh, which led me to another question here is. Is what we are seeing actually mind control from the alien or are we just seeing what is already there in these characters coming out because they've lost a level of control? You know, and this is going to sound strange, but but you know how um, uh, when people suffer from severe dementia and and they will lash out. Uh, for a number of reasons, the the frustration of kind of not understanding where they are or who they are, their relationships with people, but but then they they will say and do things that are completely and utterly out of character. Right. But it, it, you have to ask yourself: Well, is this something in that person that is now coming out? Or put it another way: Is it like when somebody has too much to drink and they they say and do things that are out of out of character for that person? You know, I was actually going to say: I mean, is it a question mm-hmm. of in vino veritas, or is somebody yeah. you know being influenced by that? I mean, and I think, that's that's yeah. a tough question when you're talking about, especially when you're talking about something like dementia. And I think that was what was so hard to watch about that Chekhov scene. You could chalk it up in one way and say, well, the alien is creating conflict. It is creating a thing for this pawn, this character to do to then make the the intensity of the hatred that much more acute. But the other way to look at it, and I, I think this is probably the the darker interpretation here, the alien is stripping away the inhibitions of these characters and making them act out maybe in a way that they would find distasteful but is still there right in some way well i mean that goes back to the quote that you mentioned earlier from my was it a taste of armageddon was that where that original quote was we choose not to kill on this day exactly i mean because i mean we are i joked about the agrarian society earlier and the birth of the agrarian society but i mean you know that's a change Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, to find a way to because initially what we're about is, OK, well, we're, we're gathering. OK, we're gathering nuts and berries. We're gathering, you know, bark. We're gathering things that, you know, hey, that guy didn't die when he ate that. I think yeah. I'll try that, too. And then at some point we come to a place where we're like, you know, 
that deer is not moving that fast. <laughs> I mean, yeah, we come to a place where we do get a bit more savage. And I'm not saying we shouldn't. I'm not saying, you know, we shouldn't eat meat because Lord knows I do. Mm. I don't kill any of it myself. And maybe if I had to, I wouldn't. It's mm. actually a pretty good chance. And I think about it that if I had to, I would <laughs> right. not. But I mean, we, 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 because of the way we have evolved as people on this planet, I mean, we, we have to have gone through a bit of a savage time or a bit more of a, um, I don't know, more of a base time, I guess. And mm -hmm. so now we're, we're, we come to this place where, okay, well, are we going to, you know, keep being that? Or are we going to move on from that? Yeah. It's that whole thing. I choose not to kill on this day. So as much as we might not like it, it seems that this, you know, alien thing was just removing the checks. Now that said, it still feels to me like the alien thing is a stand in for whatever power you want to talk about, whether that be the League of Billionaires that you know, rule the world, or if it's, you know, the government, or if it's the church or whoever. Right, I mean, it's right. it's whatever power structure has, has set up, you know, to benefit from other people's fear. And I'm not saying that all of those things do that. There are churches that do not do that. There are governments, or at least officials in government, that do not do that. There are billionaires who are good people. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, a lot of times uh, power structures are built on keeping I don't want to say keeping people down because that sounds so hippie, but let's go back to, you know, the title of this episode. It's the day of the dove. Yeah. This is a peacenik episode and not a goofy peacenik, you know, like, you know, we're all going to sing and, and make an episode that people are going to make fun of for decades. Although hold that thought uh, in the original draft, uh, Jerome Bixby wanted it to end with singing and uh, peace marches. Nope. Nope. And, nope. Uh, and that was changed. Yes. Laughter, laughter really is the best weaponry. I do it, it, honestly it's, believe it's, that more than more than the whole singing thing, because singing kind of bothers some people, yeah. <laughs> you know, and singing really does imply. I mean, if you're singing your intentions or if you're singing your belief, then you really are enforcing it on somebody else. And so yeah. even if that's a better thing, even if it's a better one, I mean, in your opinion, than the one that was being enforced upon you before, it's still somebody sort of yelling their ideology at you melodically. But they're still yelling their ideology at you. Laughter, I mean, there's nothing you can do against laughter. You can't argue against laughter. You can That's be true. angry about it. Yeah. But, I mean, nobody's arguing with you if they're laughing at you. They're just laughing at you, which is annoying. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> Although, I remember using it to... Wow, that's personal. But I remember using it to incredible effect against someone who had spent a very, very, very long time just sort of, like, ripping me down. Hmm. And one day this person said something to me that I was just like, wow, there's just, there's no way that that's going to happen to the point that I burst out laughing. Wow. And at that point, um, I mean, that was a complete role reversal yeah. at that point. It, there was, there was no more of this like rah, 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 from them and me sort of cowering. It was more like, oh, that's right. What you're saying makes no sense. Yeah. It, and, it and I don't have to treat it as such anymore. Yeah. It diffuses the power from the, the other position. Yeah. It seems to. Yeah. Yeah. And it just made this alien feel bad. How much do I owe you for this session, by the way? Because that was quite the revelation. <laughs> yeah. I yeah, apologize. I, I, I'll, I'll bill you later. Okay. Yeah, yeah please do. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think there, there's a thing here about um, also understanding that, it, you know, the Federation Starfleet, uh, Starfleet at least, is kind of a quasi-military operation. Uh, the reality is that they will face situations where they will have to fight, uh, whether it's, uh, well, hopefully only defensively, not offensively. Um, but I think there's something here about making really sure 
that the reason that you go to fight is your reason to go to fight. Um, they, they, they're doing this, and the, the way that the, uh, that the officers on the Enterprise are stating it and the way that the Klingons are stating it, it's just that they, they have to do it because they are the other. You know, the, the Federation or Starfleet has to fight the Klingons because they're Klingons, because Klingons are bad. The, the Klingons come back and say, well, all of you torture us. We know what you do. You're bad inherently because you you participate in all these terrible things. And there really truly is no reason. Uh, it, they don't even bother to waste the time on figuring out if that was a false distress call <laughs> or or anything any of the things that led into this battle um so i i think that there is a a statement there about making absolutely sure that we are all on the same page about why we are doing this you know you mentioned vietnam earlier uh, you mentioned uh, uh, many of the other struggles that occurred during the middle of the 20th century. And um, I, I think that applies there as well. You know, a lot of the frustration about Vietnam was not understanding why we were there, what was the uh, the proposed outcome and how to actually go about it other than just sending weapons and men and hoping for the best. See, I, I, I honestly, I, 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 I pretty much think I have to disagree with you. Really? Why is that? Well, because I think you're trying to force this episode of Star Trek into the rest of what we know about Star Trek. And I think mm. you're I think you're holding yourself to a standard that certainly the writers of Star Trek did not do at the time. I mean you're mm. you're now trying to make this like, okay, so how does this fit in with everything else? It doesn't. This is again that that whole part of Gene Roddenberry originally created an anthology show, right? Yeah. This is not okay. Make sure when you fight, you're fighting for the right reasons. There are other episodes that do that. This episode is 48 minutes of give peace a chance. Mm. I, I I do not feel like there was ever any question of okay, well, should should we be fighting now? I mean, in fact, the, the only time that the question comes up, it's not should we be fighting, but we should not be fighting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't feel to me like there's any there's no sense in this particular episode to me anyway that there's ever going to be a justification to fight. The fact that we've always fought is no reason to fight. The fact that you think this guy's coming after your stuff is no reason to fight. You know what you do when you think, I'm, I'm, you know, you're trying to figure out, okay, so who's benefiting from the fact that we're fighting? Because we're not benefiting from that. Right. This is going to either end up costing me my humanity or my life or my civility or my life. This is going to cost me. And the only person who wins from this is somebody up there. And so rather than us getting caught up in somebody else's fight, this this whole episode seems to be, you know what? This is stupid. We should all laugh. We should all get together and actually try to do something that's going to better everything. And, I'm, you know, I'm not saying that that's my personal belief in it. I mean, mm-hmm, I, mm-hmm. I, 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 I'll go ahead and say that is my personal belief, but I can't watch this episode and see anything but give a piece of chance. Day of the Dove. Mm-hmm. War is laughable. There's absolutely no reason for any of this. You, you, I mean, you, you have to be touched. You literally have to be insane in this episode to take up arms because right. nobody else right. is doing that automatically. Right. It's only when they're crazy that they then pick up swords, which, which, by the way, are being supplied to them. They don't even say, oh, we got to figure out a way to beat those guys. So let's find some weapons. No, no, no. Somebody is like, hey, look, something's scary. Here's something to kill it with. Right. Right. Go to it, pal. Hey. 
My bad. Turns out nobody did anything to me. My anger was irrational and inexplicable. We can laugh about it now. Ha. Ha. Sadly, my vocal processor is incapable of laughter and happy inflection. But trust me, I'm laughing with you, not at you. Okay. Probably not at you. Well, it's time to do what we do, and that is to have a final look at uh, the episode of the week, the Day of the Dove, and figure out what about it holds up, what maybe does not hold up. So, Ken, I'm going to pose the first question to you here. Does this episode, as an episode of Star Trek, hold up? I guess it depends on what you mean by as an episode of Star Trek. If you're asking about uh, battles or, you know, there's, I mean, there's stuff in it that's fairly cardboard. Mm-hmm. But I'm kind of okay with it because it feels like it was supposed to be fairly cardboard. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you're mean, so I have to fight you. And then halfway through it, we're like, "Hey, this guy's not cardboard." <laughs> you know, I mean, there, there there tends to be a bit of a a bit of an examination by everybody halfway through it. I mean, my personal feeling is this episode holds up as an episode of Star Trek. Um, it's not the most. Ah. Yeah, I mean, I would say so. I mean, that's the thing. It's not a particularly compelling episode, but maybe it's because they hit you over the head with the title. Yeah. I mean, Day of the Dove, I mean, is Day of the Dove. There's no nuance. There's no other meaning. (laughs) It doesn't feel to me like there's even a question what this episode is about. And yet, this is almost like one of the simplest morality tales that we've seen so far in the original series. Just like, you know. Yeah, give peace a chance. I really, I really cannot come away from this episode with anything other than that. Yeah. What about you? I mean, I, on the surface, it, it, I, I kind of vacillated. It, it, it felt like a weak episode. And I, I think just because the, the production values are kind of lowered, even though the acting is really good. And like you said, the message is just kind of there to, to hit you over the head. Uh, yeah, the ending is cheesy. Uh, and it, it was on the verge of being cheesier, <laughs> as uh, as I mentioned from the original script. Um, you, you know, we just had episodes where aliens put the crew of the Enterprise at war, at conflict. We just had an episode of uh, of the show where the Enterprise is tossed out beyond the edge of the galaxy. It's, you know, there's a lot of kind of rehashing that. Um, but there's a lot to like here, and I think exploration of what violence and conflict do to our psyche is the really interesting thing here. You know, if the big message is just, well, violence is bad, give peace a chance, as you're saying. Okay, well, well, that that's a great takeaway. But I think the the fun of this episode, and probably the reason this episode does hold up, is that we get to peek behind the layers of civility of all of these characters we get to see kirk snap a little but not as much as chekhov or scotty or mccoy or spock and i think that's kind of the bigger picture there is to say not just give peace a chance violence is bad violence should be a last resort but violence and conflict strip away who you are and who you want to be so um i i think because that gets explored well that really becomes the the more interesting part of the message to me. How about you? I think that part is interesting. I do also. I mean, I really do. And not to keep using you know terminology that's so steeped in the late sixties and early seventies, but I do think mm-hmm. it's also about the man. 
<laughs> which, which may sound crazy, but I mean, seriously, there is an energy that nobody can see, that nobody can identify, mm-hmm. that nobody can quite figure out, that nobody knows what its what its um, motivation is, mm-hmm. except that it draws power from conflict. It draws right. power from control. I mean, so there there does seem to me to be... I mean, not only what you're talking about, about the question of civility and what does violence do to us, but more to the point, why do we even do it? Right. I mean, because it, it, I know it upsets people when I say that not fighting is as simple as not fighting, but ultimately not fighting is as simple as not fighting. And we, we cannot even remember that. I cannot remember that. I know that that's not really true, except I believe that that is really true. Well, well, that, and I know what, that's that's yeah. that's paradoxical, but I really do believe that not fighting is as simple as not fighting. And I don't think we're going to get to that in our lifetimes. I don't mean you and me personally. You and I are going to fight forever. But <laughs> I mean, I don't I don't know that people right now are going to get to that in the lifetime that you and I are here. I would mm-hmm. like to think that, you know, someday we will. And I would be uh, more than a bit surprised if we do. That's what happens in this episode. There there comes that moment where each of the commanders simply has to trust that violence is not the way. And and somebody has to make that first move. uh, Kirk has the moment where he leaves his sword in the transporter room. Now, fat lot of good that does because as soon as he gets to engineering, they throw a sword in his hand. He's got to fight. But he has to keep saying, no, look, all we have to do is stop. All we have to do is just not fight. You put down your sword, I'll put down my sword. It's funny that he's the first one to radio throughout the Enterprise to say, there's a truce, stop fighting. Nobody stops fighting. <laughs> then Kang gets on, no, really, stop fighting. <laughs> then they actually stop fighting. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that, that goes to what you're saying, that uh, that, that is a, a viable alternative. I, I guess, now I will say, because you just reminded me in that in what you were just saying there, there is one time that it is okay to fight, and that is when somebody is coming at you. I mean, and and that's because sure, Kirk, yeah. you're right. Kirk did lay down his sword, yeah, and then he transported in, and then Kang came at him with a sword. Yeah. Uh, interestingly, the aliens did not actually give him a sword at that point. It was it was right. Kang's wife right. that tossed him the sword. Yeah. So I guess it's not a hundred percent peacenik. I would say it's ninety nine point five. Well, I, maybe that goes back to that question that I had earlier about um, uh, about saying that if it comes to violence, you, you know, you can, unfortunately, you can justify yourself into any position that you want to take. Right. Um, but uh, we have to be really careful and really analytical uh, when it comes to that point. Well, gee whiz, John, I don't know if there's even any point in continuing with Mission Log because it seems to me that we just solved it all. <laughs> wow. Hey, you're welcome, everybody. Exactly. Knock it off and quit fighting, and uh, we'll see you on the other side. Actually, there probably is more stuff to consider. There are certainly more episodes of Mission Log, including next week when we put For the World is Hollow and I Have Touched the Sky in the Mission Log. Some of the music for the mission log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com.
I'm formulating a theory. The problem with season 3 of Star Trek the original series may boil down to one thing. Hippies. And transmission. Now leaving Nerdist.com.